When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. I do miss the touch. I do miss the sense of touch. I do miss having... It's a huge area that you don't realise that you've got there that is quite sensitive. And it extends around your back and everywhere now. So if I'm touched on the back now, it gives me the, kind of a shiver. There's a memory there of what, how far that did extend, and I miss it. I really do miss it. One in 11. Stories from women surviving breast cancer. Kay was actually three years... That was November 1999... You were diagnosed in 2000. 99. 99, yeah. So it was practically three years. It was in the shower. Like so many women say that they, they find it. I was washing myself and I was suddenly felt something that I didn't think had been there before. I know Mammy rang and told Kay because I was going to drive up, but I just couldn't even get in behind the wheel of the car. And it wasn't actually a lump I don't Mammy, in Mammy that I imagined a lump, like a pea or a golf ball or whatever. So Mammy rang and told Kay, which is not exactly the way we wanted it, but... It was a thickness, it was... It's just the way it happened. It was a thickness where flesh would usually be soft. On the nipple it wasn't, there was... Um, resistance if you like to your hand rather than just the soft feeling so there was a thickness there why the hell didn't you tell me i get this <laughs> well you mightn't have got it and she was right first thought is no the oncologist saying to me it takes three years for the chemo to actually go out of your system mm. i'm imagining things so therefore it's nearly three years before you're fully back to to what you were before because i mean i suppose technically it kills all the cells good and bad so you're down to yeah, you're a ragdoll, basically, mm-hmm. and you have to kind of build yourself up. Because my sister had had breast cancer a few years previously. Yeah. 99, so it was practically three years. For six months to a year after she was had gone through everything, I was always checking myself and wondering, was this something? And then you check it again and know there was nothing. And I rechecked it. And I kind of spent that day checking it on and off and wondering, was it or was it not? I have to say, I think I found losing the hair worse. So that was the first, my first inclination that there was something. Three years is over. I'm beginning to get back to what I consider normal. Might be something wrong. And then you can't, OK, fine, here we go again. Yeah. I went to the GP then, again hoping. Every step you go, you hope that somebody will say... No. I actually went into him and I started to cry. And he thought I was depressed. He said to me, are you all right? He says, is it depression? And I said, no. And I managed to tell him what was wrong. He said, here, hop up, have a look. And he said to me, I think 
He says it might be nothing, could be nothing, but we better get it looked at. Catherine is 52. But I was just stunned because even though Anne had had this and I spent a time thinking, would I get it? Part of me actually never really believed that I would get it. I'm quite, I was quite fit. I've never been so fit. I was playing tennis three times a week and uh, I noticed before Christmas in October my ankles would swell like you would when you're pregnant and uh, no matter what I did I didn't seem to be able to get them to go down. So what prompted me in the end to do something about it was I came off the tennis court and my lower legs were still swollen and I reckoned this was not a good thing. Deirdre, age 53. My elder sister, before she was diagnosed, she had mentioned to to myself and my other sister that her legs were swollen. And it was two months later she was diagnosed with cancer. It was February and uh, I went for a routine mammogram. And a couple of weeks, maybe ten days or a couple of weeks later, an envelope came through the letterbox and uh, for some reason I was very suspicious even as soon as I saw the envelope. Elizabeth is 55. So I opened it and I was being recalled for another mammogram. I felt very, very tired um, leading up to my diagnosis. Claire is in her mid-50s. 75% of all breast cancers are in women over the age of 50. There were times where I just had to lie down and sleep, which was very unlike me at that time. But uh, I felt something was coming, yes. Something bad. Looking back, I had felt vaguely, vaguely unwell. Nothing I could pinpoint. Susan, now 46. We were on holidays in France and it was particularly hot. I remember going for a shower in the middle of the afternoon because basically to cool off and finding the lump. Um, The others were over at the swimming pool playing away. I had a necklace on and I was I just felt my necklace just was playing with my necklace and my hand just went down further it was a long necklace and I just kind of probed against the lump. Marie 39 years old. Sitting on the sofa on a Saturday afternoon reading the newspaper reading the Saturday supplement and just sitting there with a cup of tea and lounging on the couch on an ordinary Saturday afternoon. Christmas lights were up all over the place and all the rest. And we were about the last to be seen. The breast clinic at that stage was in this big, big room. So when we walked in, it was a bit nerve-wracking. The room was full of women. It was like a big school hall or something. So we sat there really just waiting. It was before March the 17th. It was March the 16th because I know it was before Paddy's Day. I was completely convinced that it was that it was a cyst. I really had, I didn't believe for one minute that it was cancer. And I sat in the room and the room was absolutely jam-packed. It was the Friday clinic. I, I'm pretty sure at the time I, I felt I was the youngest person there. And there was a lot of older women there that I felt I had absolutely no connection with. And I really didn't know what I was doing there. And it was a fine bright day and I had no qualms about going in there. I was quite light-hearted about the whole thing. In fact, I went in and I thought the place could do with a bit of livening up. Of course, I tried to make conversation with other ladies sitting in the waiting area and uh, waiting to go in, and everybody was awfully quiet and serious. In the waiting room, there were about eight or nine women, from what I recall, and uh, it became obvious that we were all callbacks. We were called sort of one at a time, and at any stage there'd be three or four people in the room, 
and it became obvious that some people were being let go after the mammogram and then all of a sudden there were, might have been only five of us left. But it was a beautiful day, I remember. The sun was shining and all of that and uh, it felt very strange because spring is an opening up time. Everything is, you know, blooming. The daffodils are out and everything else but your, your life at that point is on the wane. When I was called in to, to be examined to do, to do the mammogram, I felt I, f- I couldn't get over how cold the room was. It was freezing cold, and here was I bare-chested, you know. So I was joking with the nurses, and I think, you know, you should all be made to go bare-chested as well if you're going to be <laughs> making us come in here cold, jokingly. So that was fine. It went through, and the nurse there is obviously fully trained. She takes you. Now, I have a lot of friends who hated the idea of going in for a mammogram because they obviously, they're very... Um, self-protective about their bodies um, I'm not that uh, precious about mine, I'm quite happy to have people touch me on that but I know that a lot of people go in face this as an ordeal thing and they're told that it hurts and all that now I'm not saying it's the most comfortable thing in the world the, the machine is like um, a sandwich maker in a lot of ways <laughs> you know it has two sides to it and you literally have to try and get as much of your breast into between these two plates as possible while she squeezes it as you know as close as possible because she's trying to get all the views possible the impression i got after having the mammogram done was that everything was okay the ultrasound seemed to be clear as well and the biopsy was taken as a precaution some were called for ultrasound and then some more were let go so we were thinning down considerably and eventually i was called back for a biopsy And I think out of the original maybe nine women who were there that morning, only two of us were actually kept, so to speak. And I do remember the the last woman to leave who had got the all clear. She was walking through the radio and she was trying not to yippee. (laughs) The two unfortunates who were left behind. They'd see the 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 flat skin. They'd see the flat skin, yeah. Rather than Base, you know, like the way you lean forward, well, your your breast kind of hangs from. Whereas this, you lean forward, it comes like you've got a breast to stay here, see, and then you've yeah. got one that's hanging. Yeah, you have to do the bend forward trick, you know. So we sat there really, just waiting. I have to say, I think I found losing the hair worse. I mean, I'm not saying losing the breast isn't terrible, but it's kind of not obvious. And they said, malignant tumour, because it didn't click with me. I was expecting to hear the word cancer. And even though I know what a malignant tumour is, when when they said it, I didn't automatically associate it with cancer. So I was there saying, you know, what what is wrong with me? Whereas when the hair came out, it was obvious. That's a sick person. Mm. You don't want to be labelled in a way a sick person. No. What they said to me was that there was something, there was a growth and it was under the nipple of the breast, so they would have to remove the whole total breast. They'd have to do a total mastectomy. No, no, you don't. I'm watching it actually the other night, Desperate Housewives at the moment. I'm a fan of Desperate Housewives, and one of the characters has cancer, and she's getting treat chemo, so she's bald, she's lost her yeah. And the episode before last, she pulled her... Oh, yeah. The wig off and stood there bald, and I still looked at it, and it still gave me the... Yeah. You know... It used to come into my head, my God... One of you is going to be gone in the new year. When it, when it pops up in television programmes like that, you oh, know... when it was on the Sex and the City. Yeah, I didn't see that. The girl, Samantha. Yeah. 
we left. We got out to the car. We sat in the car for a bit and cried. And um, Catherine had her mastectomy in January 2000. Because even going off to the hospital, even though I had a sense that something was going to be wrong, I still thought once I went there, everything would be all right once I came out, you know. So we had to drop in to get bread and milk and something for the dinner. And we got there and we parked the car and Paul said, do you want to come in with me? And I just couldn't face the idea of going into a supermarket where people were buying ordinary things, everyday things. Well, I remember sitting there watching the Christmas lights twinkle and think, they're going to cut, you know... <laughs> Just the very idea of it. They're going to cut off this breast after Christmas. This, it's fine. There's nothing wrong with it, you know. Marie was told she had cancer four years ago at the age of 35. My, my surgeon came in and he had a, a breast nurse um, behind him and he gave me the news. But I just, I just couldn't take it in. It was very hard to... I, I just remember on the day he actually had a tie and there was Donald Duck all over his tie and I just stared at Donald Duck. And I just couldn't take it in because literally you're, you're told and then then they start talking about um, surgery and chemotherapeutic options and radiotherapeutic options. And it just you just feel like this is absolutely nothing to do with me. It's just the most surreal feeling. And you leave with a book. I mean, there's a booklet thrust into your hand. And it, I mean, this isn't the title, but it's something like so you've got cancer. But you think, you know, you're, you're walking out with this booklet and, and you're just thinking, you know, I walked in here. Your life just changes literally in an instant. Um, I had left work that morning to go down and um, I came back. I, I know some people kind of retreat into themselves. I just went in and I, I just started to tell everybody instantly. And I started telling everybody, I've got cancer. I won't be back and work for nine months, is what they told me. I'm going to take, to take nine months off. So I kind of went into this mode of organising, you know, well, that's it now. I've got to leave work now. I need to start getting my leave in place. And But then they sent me home. <laughs> so they sent me home that day. And um, I actually went to my sister um, because I couldn't face telling my mother because I knew how upset she'd be. In 2006, Susan had her left breast removed. Chit-chatted to the surgeon. He just looked at where the biopsy had been taken, made sure it was all OK and seemed very relaxed. And um, I got dressed again and sat down and just waited for him to tell me that, oh, that's fine, maybe we'll check up on you next year or whatever the procedure was going to be. And um, to my shock and horror, he said... Um, We've checked the biopsy and unfortunately you have evidence of uh, cancer. I remember fumbling for my phone to try and, and um, ring my husband. The breast care nurse brought me to a little room and uh, I sat there. She got me the usual cup of tea or whatever. And uh, let's just say the air turned blue around me with my language. I was just... I uh, just was mad, mad as hell, <laughs> cursing and swearing and crying. And um, I just wanted my husband there. My world had just kind of imploded and I just couldn't operate. Deirdre, a double mastectomy, the summer 2006. Got the bad news and I went across the road, of course, to meet him and trying to trying to pull off a fast one. I mean, acting should have been not one, not one of my professions, but um, this is how to go. I said, oh, I was grand, yeah. Do you find anything? Ah, they're not sure yet. <laughs> I can hear myself now. I sounded so stupid, yeah. And uh, so we were actually driving home after. I said, actually, I said, they have found something. They want me to have a bilateral mastectomy. And he kind of said, what does that mean? I said, it means that they want to take away both my breasts. Claire had immediate surgery the end of March 2004. 
they said it was advanced breast cancer and I would need surgery first, a full mastectomy on that left side. Also, all my lymph glands would have to be removed and it's best to do it as soon as possible. Your first reaction is, um, well, there is something wrong with me, the fatigue, the not feeling well, the blurred vision, the all of the kind of strangeness, the nightmares, all of these things that have been disturbing you, that you have been validated in some way that there is something wrong and there is a kind of a, a weird relief in that. Um, and then the horror that you're going to have to part with literally part of your body and a part that's very significant for women, breasts which are associating with life, uh, fertility symbols throughout the ages. Every culture adores the vital and fertile naked woman and suddenly you're going to be somebody in a way who's going to be maimed and invaded in a way that you really hadn't thought about before. I remember a friend asking me afterwards, she says, do you have to wear granny type brass? <laughs> and whereas they're, they are improving, they're still not, you're not going to get any of your flimsy flouncy or nice no. bit of colour or if you felt like having a red one or a pink one with black on it or whatever. Even a swimsuit. Yeah. You have to, yeah. You have to go you should see them, they're really exciting. <laughs> and I mean, they're so dear. Yeah, I got one there a few years ago. And they're ago 90 euro. I'm sure people look and say on the beach, my God, you know, did she part of her great granny swimsuit or I mean, something? they're not exactly I mean, the okay, most... they colour them up and they make yeah. them look nice, but they're still, you know, you're up here and you're down here and, you know. They're... I couldn't actually contemplate it. How are they going to do it and what's it going to look like? And, oh, you know, you get nearly horrible Im- images in your head. <laughs> it's just kind of like when you walk around like that, you kind of say... Oh, God almighty, I mean, they've done this to me and now they won't even give me something that I can feel. <laughs> nice. And... and even the weight, the prosthesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like, a, I mean, I think I remember putting them once on the weight scales. Mm-hmm. On the kitchen, it was just one day, I think it was two pounds or something. Images of somebody actually taking a knife to you and removing it and what's it going to look like afterwards and where do they put it? It's funny, like, even looking around in shops, you're kind of, oh, that's not... No, that's too wide a neck. You know, the scoop circular necks, you can't wear them. No, you can't wear them. Yeah. A wide V-neck, you can't wear them because just the, it's kind of, whereas you'd be flat here, you are kind of gone in a bit here. One of the worst aspects of the whole thing was telling people. It became an absolute endurance test because every, t- every single person you told went, oh my God, what? They were horrified. So you were like this sort of, bad fairy going around spreading all this awful news. It's the thing that upset me most was having to tell them. I wasn't as upset telling Peter or telling the boys because uh, it was just I felt I was telling these women who were in the same boat as me, really healthy, having a great time, living life to the full and I'm cutting them off at the knees basically or telling them look you want to be careful, you could get cut off like this. I mean it was just incredible, that's how incredible it was and I just couldn't tell them. I couldn't actually bring myself to tell any of my family. I just found it too... I just wasn't able to, basically. The eldest in the family is ten years older than me, and then there's two in between, and then there's myself. I suppose I actually do like being the centre of attention, so here I was, centre stage, in my own drama, and um, nobody could say anything against me. People could not listen to me, people couldn't, you know... Everybody had to pay attention to me, so there was a few moments where it was kind of... um, interesting to be able to shock people or to be able to say those things. 
and my husband, God love him, had to do it, for which I'll be eternally grateful. He rang round a few few of my relatives and got them to tell the rest of my family and told a few friends. My eldest sister um, reacted very well, although shocked, as did the next eldest to me. She was shocked, whereas one sister really lost the plot slightly. And that's one thing I, I just found impossible to do, to actually say the words to my family or to my friends. Uh, I mean, I don't think I've actually, funny enough, I don't think I've actually said it out to anybody who had me told previously, I have breast cancer. And I was absolutely adamant. I didn't want anybody's pity. Uh, their support, yes, but not, not their pity. This was something that happened to me, and if they could do something for me, well and good. One sister really lost the plot slightly. She kept saying, what? What? Breast cancer? What? And I really felt like smacking her one just to stop her because she wasn't making me feel any better. I wanted people not to be panicked. I was working very hard to keep everything calm for my kids and to keep things normal for my kids. I didn't want to be surrounded by by drama. People love drama and people do love the drama of it. So not only did I enjoy it, but I know a lot of people loved the drama of it. Oh, did you hear what happened to Marie? And it's like, oh my God, and there's this big, big drama surrounding it. But again, it's like the tabloids, it's like the celebrities. That's yesterday's news. And a month later, you can't shock anybody. They're like, oh, you still have cancer? All oh, right, okay. Oh no, we're actually going to have to listen to this. We're going to have to see her go through, you know, it's not funny anymore. It's not, it's, we have to see her going through the whole, you know, sick and the hair loss. They, they move on, with, people move on and, and they get tired of it and it's, they're not interested in your drama. Pretty quickly people aren't interested in the drama of it all. So that wears away pretty quick. What happened in that scene? Do you remember when she, she first of all heard she had the, the breast cancer when she went in to get a boob job, she discovered. And then she started on the chemo and it was when she was doing, she was sitting in a restaurant talking to them and she just did this and the hairs were all here. And then she, she went back to her place and she just got the razor and, and shaved it all off because I remember there was, when I was in the hospital at the time, there were some people and they wouldn't, they wouldn't do that. And kind of like some of them were wearing scarves and when they take the scarf off, there'd be a big ball patch, there'd be a string of hair, there'd be a ball patch. And you were kind of saying, please just shave it all off. And then I had got the wig beforehand because they recommend that you get your wig while you still have your hair. And I had done that. Whereas if if you're halfway, someone's come off, then that'll start growing quicker than this. And then when you're when it's coming back, it mightn't come back properly or come back in. Mm-hmm. But I just found it less traumatic because or you get up in the morning and you'd look at your pillow and mm-hmm. there's hairs on your pillow. Because even turning into bed at night would pull them. Yeah, Yeah, I did try in the beginning to wear the wig over the... You can't. Because my hair was quite short, but you can't. No. It's the most uncomfortable. There's something cleaner about a bald head. Yeah. There's something sick looking about a tuft of hair here and a tuft of hair there. You know, at least if the the head is bald, you've made a decision, you've decided this is coming on. But I found the wigs were uncomfortable enough Yeah. without hair mm. catching. Mm. I was trying to wear the wig over the hair and that was driving me mad with the itch and I couldn't know what to do and I was afraid that there might be bald patches that people could see and all of that. So Paul said to me, you'd probably be better off just 
taking it off, just shaving it off. So he said he'd do it for me. You came with me when I got my wig too. Yeah. We went together, we shopping went together. for wigs. <laughs> it's a new a new form of shopping. shopping well, I wouldn't but recommend, but... <laughs> but it does. It, it, it has to have somebody else there to say. Yeah, and even kind of somebody who had worn one. So he said he'd do it for me. So it was, it was a Sunday afternoon. We went upstairs to the bedroom, closed the door. The boys were around the place doing their own thing. And he, he, he shaved it off for me. He, um, he just did it, basically, really. He just started, he cut off all the, the bigger pieces. And when he got cut, cut off as much as he could cut off, he shaved off the rest of it. And it's just that next, it's another step. You know, the breast is gone. So when you go to bed, when you're going to bed at night, you take off the bra that has the prosthesis. So that's one bit of you, you take off and put you away. take off the hair. And then when the, when the hair is gone too, you go to bed at night and you take off the, the bra and then you take off your hair, you know. So you're beginning to wonder, <laughs> you know, how many bits of me I've taken off. I can remember when it starts to go back because it starts to go back like a little fuzz, like a little stone. The fuzz is like a baby fuzz. It's really, really soft. And um, you just can't stop patting your hair and you can't stop feeling it and rubbing it. And it's just, it's just like spring. It's like the first bud just appearing in spring. And it just feels so wonderful to feel that. And, and just to see it grow every day. It's like you're growing again. It's like a rebirth. I, mean, I I never gave a minute's thought to what it would be like to lose your hair, to be very, very sick. I mean, I knew I was going to have to go through chemotherapy, although initially I thought going again, against going through chemotherapy. I tried to weigh up this whole risk-benefit ratio by doing an awful lot of research on the internet and, and literally by driving myself almost mad and everybody around me mad. For me, I was thinking, do I take that gamble? Do I gamble? Do I not have chemotherapy? And do I gamble that that my cancer won't come back? Or do I have chemotherapy and gamble that I won't ever be able to have children? Um, I don't know how much I did deal with the cancer because I was so consumed by the whole infertility question. I don't want to say that I can't because I don't want to say that, but but my fertility is is very impaired. Um, you know, the drugs have had um, have had a very harsh effect on on my reproductive system so um it's not impossible um and there's always hope but um i honestly i i I don't know because i i don't know (laughs) i don't know i've been married uh for over three decades um I was 20, he was 21. We married straight out of college. <laughs> we thought we were adults and grown-ups. <laughs> yeah, so we've been together a long, long time. The day after I had my surgery, when I was coming to, after the anaesthesia and everything else, I asked to be taken to the bathroom, and my husband was there with me. And I just stripped naked. I felt the best thing to do was to look at myself and for him to look at myself and for both of us to accept the way I was from that moment. And that actually was a wonderful moment because it released me from a lot of the anxiety I would have. And I just thought, yes, this is who I am now. A one-breasted woman, but this is me, and I'm still here. My husband 
they're all different but obviously my husband wasn't a breast man even when I had my own so me losing them wasn't going to be a big huge deal to him but it was like as it was to me and with these um, implants now that I have it's still not a huge deal to him he, he, he wouldn't mind touching them if he had to but he'd rather not he's like that about them because yeah, it's 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 understandable. It's like you know, a prosthesis. You know, is the idea of somebody uh, of touching. Some people find it really hard to be able to shake hands with somebody to, with, a, with a prosthesis as opposed to a real hand. Yeah, and I think it's probably the same thing. Although it it is my own skin that's on them. It's not like a total prosthesis or whatever. But it, no, but I mean that's the way he is, and I I can accept that. He just that's the way he deals with it. He certainly doesn't turn away in disgust or anything like that. But um, while my mum went through her, um, a mass dissection much, much, or sorry, much earlier, like she was 66, so it was back in the 80s, I had no idea what a mass dissectomy was until I started, until I was minding her before she died, the 12 years later, when I saw her, saw her naked for the first time. And I realised, you know, what she'd been living with. And I didn't, like, that had never occurred to me. She had a single mastectomy, so she had one one breast. Just couldn't believe that she'd lived with this all the, you know for twelve or fifteen years, and I had been ignorant of it and like that that she'd gone through so much. And before I went in for surgery, I got Peter to photograph my breasts out in the back garden there, and um, and I said to the boys, I said, "Look, do you want to see what I'm going to go through, or do you not?" I gave them the option. I said, "Look, if you want to see me, I have no problem." And they decided, no, they didn't need, they didn't want to see me. Now, they might do. It doesn't matter, you know, if they do, the, the photographs are there. It's not that I, I want them to be shocked, I'm not, but I don't want them to be shocked at the wrong time, you know. It's better than, look at me now, this is, um, you can see me, I'm healthy, uh, this is what I look like. Um, better than feeling sorry for me, like I'd felt sorry for my mother. Pretty soon after my surgery, my boy would have been about four and a half at the time. My daughter turned eight after, pretty soon after, and I remember she's, our, our time for chatting would be when she was having her bath, I'd sit on the on the loose seat and we'd, we'd chit-chat about various things and often things would emerge, you know, she'd tell me about any little trouble she had with her friends or whatever. So I sat her down, she was in the in the bath, splashing away, and I said um, that uh, I had been to the hospital and uh, the doctors had discovered something in my booby, as we, we called it or whatever. And uh, it meant that they were going to have to remove my breast. What do you mean they'll take away? I said, you know, I'm going to be flat on one side. And she said, oh, she said, and, and what will you look like when you're wearing your clothes? And I said, oh, they, they'll give me like a a false booby, you know, like a like a sponge one or a plastic one. Or we did laugh about that, whatever it was going to be made of, you know. She had some song about Barbie with plastic boobies or something like that. She, she made some remark about being been like Barbie or something. I didn't tell her at that stage. I told her that after the surgery, when I was better, I'd have to have some medicine that would make me a little bit sick and uh, that my hair might fall out. And this was a great source of curiosity. But she didn't seem to be afraid or she didn't seem to be, you know, traumatised by this information. And... um, I suppose because as an adult you find something traumatic or horrific, it doesn't necessarily mean that a child finds the same things horrific or traumatic. And I actually discovered I have a very nice shaped head. 
<laughs> the kids were fascinated. They used to like come and rub my head. And when it started to grow back in, they used to check it every day and see kind of that they'd feel it. And it was it was kind of soft and, and kind of fuzzy. And they loved they loved rubbing it because it was like, you know, petting a, an animal or something. They also enjoyed playing with my wig. <laughs> my my daughter used to dress my son up in the wig and uh, drag out the prosthesis and dress him up with the bra and uh, make a complete fool of him. <laughs> But she enjoyed it. <laughs> My son had been away in Spain and he had he had a uh, an electric razor that he uses to keep his hair short and he'd come back that day. So we, I now had the razor back and I went up to the bathroom and I got an extension lead and I put down papers on the floor and I took off all my clothes and first of all I poured a very large vodka and tonic, which is my drink of choice and I said I'm really going to need this now so I'm there in the bathroom and I'm looking in the mirror for ages and I'm saying well where will I start will I start at the front and I thought no that's too that's too awful I'll start at the side so once I got started and the first lot of hair fell on the floor I kind of took courage from that and I said well that's the worst bit over now so I just kept going and uh, it was very difficult to do on your own actually at the back (laughs) I ended up with score marks all over my head but uh Myself and my daughter were in town one day and I was wearing my wig. And we were standing waiting to cross the traffic lights. And there were two young English guys standing behind us. One said to the other, Well, you know, would you do a bold one? If she was bold, like, would you give her one even if she was bold? And the, his friend responded and he said, I don't know, really. Yeah, I think I'll think give her one even if she was bold. I think I would, yeah. So with that, the lights changed and we crossed the road. Now, I was cracking up laughing, thinking if only they knew... Eva said to me, Eva didn't, hadn't heard. And she said to me, what are they talking about? What were you laughing at? What were they talking about? So I started to explain. I said, Eva, they were saying to one another, would you, would you give her one if she was bald? Even if she had no hair, would you still give her one? Anyway, we, Eva started laughing. Anyway, we got to the car and I zapped the car. I looked back and here were the two young guys coming towards me. They had been behind and they had overheard me explaining to Eva, And they looked kind of embarrassed. I couldn't resist. So I said, hi, guys. And I lifted the wig. Well, they went, ah! it was so worth it. <laughs> Eva was mortified. The two lads were even more mortified. And I just laughed all the way home. I said to myself, now that'll teach you. Be careful what you're saying with an earshot. Like, Poor guys. <laughs> Would you give her one even if she was bold? <laughs> I couldn't resist it, though. Up came the wig and the two eyes went out with sticks. <laughs> I got a laugh that day. You're kind of a sounding board for each other. Mm. But I have to say, I mean, as I say, I wasn't sick. Mm. I didn't have a reaction to the tablets. Mm. So I suppose in a way you could say I sailed through the the treatment. It's just different. But but you know what I mean? As in respect of, there are a lot of people from the the day one that they have they were so sick during it. I wasn't sick at all. That never leaves your head if you're told you've advanced breast cancer. You know, it's like a bell that goes off from time to time. You just have to learn to cope with it, and you cope with it. People cope with it in many different ways. You know. I think she's slightly rose-tinted glasses. Okay, I got physically sick and threw up and all the rest, but she was tired. The big thing about the the chemo is okay. You get your chemo, and 
in my case, for about three or three, two days after that, you're throwing up and then you're tired. But as it builds up, and I think everybody will tell you that. I mean, I remember standing at the bottom of the stairs thinking to myself, you know, I need to get up to the top of that stairs. But just the thought of going up those stairs was like too much hard work. We went on holidays in July 2007 and I remember swimming in the sea and thinking, oh, I never thought I'd get to this place where I just feel so good to be alive. You know, I have my joie de vivre back. Because you can't, when you're going through that phase, you just cannot ever imagine feeling happy again. Now, Anne had the same, that same tiredness. I, I mean, I remember yeah, her being I mean, tired. <laughs> you know, she may be saying, but... No, I know, I know you had different what I mean things, is, Dennis, but, like, um, I think the sickness is a horrible thing because that tires you anyway. Well, it like does, if you have but, a, but like you've got the, the tiredness, the sickness, plus the tiredness of the... Whereas at least I only had the tiredness of the treatment, is what I'm trying to say, as in that respect is what well, I mean. I it was easier. That's physical. I'm still not letting her away with it. I think she was still. It's, 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 it's a big deal when it comes down to it, but you'll all have, everybody has their own things, whatever it is. I never, ever felt like, why me? Why did this happen to me? Um, I always thought, well, why wouldn't it happen to me if it's happening to every second person or, you know, the neighbour down the road? I, so I didn't have that, which I think quite a lot of people do have. They feel sort of they've been picked out in some way. I never did have that um, feeling. I just thought it was unlucky, but there you are. Unlucky things happen, and I'd been lucky up to that. If you're a 35 to 39-year-old Irish woman, you have a 1 in 300 chance of getting breast cancer. I just didn't didn't understand what was going to what effect it was going to have on me. I couldn't project it. Um like that when I was in when I came to Dublin first and from the country, I used to have terrible trouble going home at weekends. I'd be like a bitch at home and I'd go home at the weekends. It'd give me awful trouble. And my mother said to me, she said, Look, just project yourself to being here before you leave Dublin. And it worked. It was fantastic. I'd get there and I was relaxed. So I've practiced that ever since. <clears throat> and like that, going in for this business while I knew what was going to happen in surgical terms, I had no idea how my head was going to deal with it because I just couldn't see myself being happy or being accepting my altered state. That rises to one in a hundred from the ages of 40 to 44. And the fear is, is one of the most horrible feelings. You know, the... the for me, it was the fact that I had two small children and I thought, oh my God, what is going to happen to them if things don't go my way? Their dad is great. They're very close to their dad. Well, they still need a mother. Might be the best mother in the world, but I'm the only one they've got. And uh, we love each other. And one in 50 from 45 to 49. Having breast cancer, it's not the treatment, it's not the chemotherapy, it's not the surgery, it's not the radiation. It's coming to terms with the fact that you, you know, you do have to face your own mortality. You have potentially life-threatening illness and it's a possibility that you may die within the next couple of years of this illness. And although you might look perfectly healthy on the outside and everyone tells you how great you look and, you know, healthy you look again, you still could be dying. And not, not to be overdramatic about it, but that's, that's a stark reality. After 50, it's one in 30. It's month by month, um, year by year, chances of you being cured get better. But there's no guarantees. 
until you're like 10, 15, 20 years out from it, you can't be considered completely cured. By the time an Irish woman reaches the end of her life, the odds will have increased to 1 in 11. Um, I, I heard of, of somebody today whose cancer has come back and she's a year older than me and she went through the whole treatment um, the same time as me. And you feel guilty. In Ireland, the five-year survival rate for breast cancer is 72.8%. The European average is 77.4%. You feel like, I mean, you do feel guilty. You feel like, why, why was, you know, why am I... Um, why am I being given a second chance? You know, it's... They didn't, you know, they, they did everything that you did. They did the same treatment. They've worked just as hard as you have to get better. And um, it's just very hard to make sense of it. In Ireland, 600 women die from breast cancer each year. Even though I tell her, <laughs> as her big sister, you know, we're told not to carry things that are too heavy. In, on the side that the operation's there because it's not as strong. You're you see, more the trouble is because I'm right-handed, you just automatically... Yeah, but still. Like, as I say, if you're, if you're somewhere and there's nobody to, to pick up a suitcase of off a carousel on holidays, what do you do? There's always a man there. They don't, they don't care. You asked? I'm sorry, them. I've asked. You're left there pulling... Off on holidays. I don't know, I think there's always some But um, anyway, we, we, <laughs> we agree to disagree on these things. <laughs> when you're doing something at the time, you can't always... No, I know you can't. I know that. And I know it's fine. If I'm going somewhere, I more likely would have Paul or one of my big strapping sons with me to do things. And I know you're not doing that. That's not what I mean. I am not giving out to you, <laughs> doing the older sister role. But it's just... It's not going to make me not do something that I would have done anyway, because as far as I'm concerned, I'm still the same person I was before. It's not going to stop me um, doing the things I would have done. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.